Welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day, explained and analysed by The Times of London, with me, Toby Gillis, and Bhavani Vadi. As we analyse if the world really is saved with an agreement, sold as game-changing from COP28. Hooray! It's the announcement we've all wanted out of COP28, that's the UN's climate change conference in Dubai, where for the first time there's been an agreement, an actual deal for almost 200 countries to, this is a quote, transition away from the use of fossil fuels. Or is it the announcement we've all wanted? No doubt it is historic, but does it go far enough? Those in the room, Bhavani, seem to think so. Or at least maybe four of them, judging by that. So, Bavani, is the world saved? Well, that's why we're here. The whole raison d'etre of the world in ten to analyse the detail. I mean, even Vopka Herkstra, the European Commissioner for Climate Action, said, for the first time in 30 years, we might now reach the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. So, as always, it's complicated. Let's get clarity from The Times' environment editor, Adam Vaughan, who literally rushed onto a call with us from Passport Control in order to contribute to today's World in 10. This on its own clearly won't get us to 1.5 degree world. We know we're on track for an almost three degree world at the moment. That said, this is massive. You know, this is a really big milestone you know, you may say, well, it's not binding, you know, no one's going to police it. Well, it's not really about that. It's about the market signals that it sends. You can entirely decide it, fingers crossed. However, it trickles down from this high level international moment of these climate talks to national governments, to local governments in your town or your city, how you vote at the ballot box. You know, no one is pretending that this is the only game in town, but it sets the direction of travel, right? So positivity... And an acknowledgement that this also can't save the world on its own. Progress, if you will, and significantly so. But inevitably, that doesn't please everyone. It does not. Those at the coal face of oh, this... Oh, I see what you've done there. Yeah, <laughs> ...are the small island nations. Yeah. Smaller even than the UK. We're thinking Maldives, Haiti, Cuba, Bahamas. They're the ones most at risk soonest from rising sea levels. Another on the list is Samoa, the Pacific island... It's fair to say that one of those not involved in that applause, despite being in the room, was Samoan climate activist Brianna Fruin. It's hard to celebrate incremental change. We're asked to clap. But for small island states, we know there's no future for us. We know that we can't reach a 1.5 target without the phase out of fossil fuels. And that was not seen in the text. Fossil fuels is the hand that feeds the climate crisis. As you hack into the earth for coal and oil, you're hacking into the land of my people. Everyone can relate to being home. Everyone can relate to knowing the feeling of family and having the human urge to want to protect and help your family. Climate change is taking away that very thing for us. It's taking away our home and it's taking away our ability to keep our families safe. We're still on track for disaster. That's not easy to hear, is it? And it is interesting because when I spoke to Adam Vaughan about this, he said that's exactly why these COP events are vital. It gives an equal voice to Samoa as, say, China. The hope is that with this major development today, we can now expect more in the future. There's loads of analysis from Adam on this at thetimes.co.uk now. 
to South America, where it appears genuinely possible that a war could break out. Regular listeners will know that last week, Venezuela held a referendum on a huge area of Guyana called Essequibo, where they literally just declared it to be theirs. Think Russia and Crimea 2.0, but like without a single boot on the ground. When we spoke to Stephen Gibbs on the pod last week, he was just about to head to Guyana to cover the story and it's developing fast. At the time of recording, a meeting between the presidents of the respective countries is due to be held tomorrow. But the Guyanese president, Irfan Ali, spoke to Stephen before that. We don't want any conflict. What we want is peace. We don't want to wake up every morning with someone threatening us. We don't threaten anyone. Every day you can hear a threat coming to us. Even under those conditions, we are willing to talk. The international community must give us credit for this. We have seen many examples where when persons are given an inch, they take a yard. They come on your border and the next thing you know, they're all over in your country. That's a stark warning right there. Stephen Gibbs has spoken to people near the border and he told me the hope is that the president does stand his ground when he meets Venezuela President Maduro. But a warning, it might need strength from the international community to bring this to an end. President Ali, who's been uh, sort of encouraged to go and talk to Maduro by other regional leaders, says, you know, the one thing I'm not prepared to do is talk about where my frontier with Venezuela should be. President Maduro is already calling victory. The thing the Guyanese keep stressing is that it's not Venezuela against Guyana. It is Venezuela against Guyana and a whole lot of allies. All the Caribbean nations really support the Guyanese view on this. It also has the backing of the United States and the UK, etc. There'll be more on this story once the meeting takes place. If the meeting takes place. So watch this space and the world section of The Times for details. It's fair to say, I think, that the burden of birth control relies largely on females. It does, yeah. And very little progress has been made on a male pill, that is, until now. Yes, a group of British men have become the first in the world to test a drug called Catchily, YCT529. Uh, The trial's being run by a company based in San Francisco, but in the British city of Nottingham, and it involves 16 volunteers at a clinic. It works by stopping the formation of sperm in the testes, and that differs from earlier attempts because they tried to reduce sperm production by suppressing the hormone testosterone. Yeah, those previous attempts were deemed to have caused too many side effects like acne, weight gain, mood swings, although many of those symptoms may sound familiar to women who currently take a hormone-based contraceptive. The Times' science correspondent Rhys Blakely explains why this trial is a significant development. It means there will be a regulatory route for these kind of drugs. The company in question is an American company. It's a startup that's actually come out of a a startup incubator that used to be run by Sam Altman, the the OpenAI chief executive. So it's got some sort of serious credentials in in terms of the the world of Silicon Valley, where it's come from. But what they've done is done the hard work of convincing the UK medical regulator, the MHRA, that this is a drug that has potential and that they can be trusted to run a you know a responsible safe trial uh, and once one drug in a class has, has passed over that hurdle it's much easier for other drugs to follow in its footsteps so you know there are no guarantees it may not work 
But at the same time, you know, it's exciting. It has been 60 years, and I think lots of people will think uh, time is overdue for a male contraceptive pill. So just why has it taken so long to develop the male pill? Part of the reason is that the science is more complicated, but also Reese has said there's been a lack of interest from the pharmaceutical industry, male-dominated, no doubt. Eight hundred and twelve million hours. That's the length of time viewers have spent watching The Night Agent, an FBI thriller series that's the most popular show on Netflix in the first half of this year. How do we know? Well, for the first time, the streaming giant has released its viewership data, a significant change in strategy for the company, which has long been criticised for a lack of transparency. It was actually a key issue during the recent Hollywood strikes, with actors and writers arguing that they're underpaid because the streaming giant hasn't been open about how well their content's doing. There is possibly also another explanation why Netflix has released this data now. It's arguably won the streaming wars with almost 250 million global subscribers. That's far more than its rivals. Oh, they're bragging, are they? (laughs) Yeah, and showing off about how popular its content is could possibly help it attract more A-list stars. As a sports fan, I've always wanted to get close to the action, but, uh, Bhavani, I'm not sure I fancy an Olympic long or triple jumper, you know, spikes and all, landing in my lap. Um, It does seem, though, potentially at this moment in time, for the Paris Games next year, that might be a risk. Yes, this is brilliant. It's a brilliant Times exclusive by two of the very best in the sports team, Matt Lawton and Martin Ziegler, who have discovered a mistake in the design of the stadium means that there's not enough room for the sand pit they usually land in. (laughs) My favourite type of story. Sporting, comical, but kind of also serious. Um, Unfortunately, that is all we've time for, though. You'll have to read it for more. Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of the Times of London. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 